This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is June 10th, 2022, and this is episode 293. I'm Scott Lundabo. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We're coming to you on a Friday night. Life happens. Sometimes we have to shift the schedule. Hope you didn't miss us yesterday. On today's show, the BC Liberals are considering a name change. The federal Conservatives are talking membership numbers, and we have lots of reports that came out to cover what otherwise might have been a kind of boring week in politics. The fact that The other two stories I mentioned are a name change and membership numbers. These reports cover heat deaths, freedom of information, and elections. First, thanks, as always, to the patrons who help make this show possible. Join them at patreon.com slash politicoast and help tell us where we should do our 300th show later this summer in seven weeks to go. We should plan something. We should book a space or do a thing. Let's jump into the record-breaking race, the largest leadership race ever in Canadian history, as far as we can tell, is happening. The Conservative Party of Canada, their executive director, has said that the party has signed up well over 600,000 members who are eligible to vote in the coming leadership race. For contest, that means 1.5% of all Canadians is now a Conservative Party member, which is high. When you say 1.5%, it sounds really low, actually. But for Canadian political party memberships, it's super low. In 2020, for context, the Conservatives had 269,469 members. I love that they have a double nice in there. I'm very small-minded and tired. But that I think the Liberals, we looked this up on some of the numbers were being talked about for Brown and Polyev that we'll get into but the average liberal or conservative race has two to 300,000 people if they're lucky. And that goes back a little ways. Yeah, because the- If you go back too far, they get into delegated conventions, but in modern eras. Mm-hmm. I think there were about 170,000 ballots that were cast in the 2020 leadership race. So yeah, these numbers just blow that out of the water by quite a bit. Which is quite wild. I... It, it can't be great being in the Liberal Party, being Justin Trudeau and seeing those numbers. Just, that suggests there's a lot of incitement and movement around the Conservatives in a way that I'm not necessarily sure anyone really thought was there six months ago when they were going into their third leadership race in a few years' time. I guess it's been five years, but three leadership races in five years. That's that's not a great track record. And there really was a question of whether the uh, conservatives were running out of steam on a lot of stuff and apparently not. I think the question for me is whether it's genuine interest in the conservative race. And I think there's a strong case for that. Or if it's like the recent Jason Kenney UCP leadership review, where there's just a lot of interest in advancing a position, whether that's for someone or against someone. And you may have as many people signing up to stop Pierre Polyev as you have signing up to endorse him. 
And that kind of positive negative momentum could be all in there, even if not every one of those people would turn out to vote. I think now, that's a l- it seems pretty likely. That, that doesn't seem that. super likely, especially because there's you have to pay fifteen dollars. It's a hassle, and then when the ballot finally comes, you have to go photocopy your ID and uh, to include with the the ballot. It, it's not without its hassles, and fifteen dollars it's not a huge amount, but it it's a very real barrier to people just going. I don't like that Pierre guy, but like taking that extra step is fairly significant and i just don't think there's going to be a lot of people who are so anti-pierre polio that they'll get a membership here rather than just voting for another party in the next general election i will fully agree that everyone who has signed up as a member is someone who is an accessible conservative voter easily there's one there's there'll be a couple Other than exceptions maybe yeah like i've seen a couple of people on twitter who are like i'm gonna sign up to stop him and i'm like you can't do entryism into the party that you're at the opposite end of the spectrum from i'm sorry you can barely do entryism into like left-wing parties yeah i've known people yeah who aren't national conservatives who've occasionally bought memberships in this and the 2017 race but they are very much the minority, and statistically, it's probably not going to make it much of a difference at all. So, the membership deadline has passed, which is why we're seeing numbers out. All of those who are signed up will get their ballot packages in late July, early August. They will have to fill them out, as you described, and get them back to the party by September 6th, and we'll hear the announcements counted and declared on September 10th. So, in terms of an of the claims... Pierre Polyev's team is saying they have signed up 311,958 members. Patrick Brown's team says they have signed up around 150,000, to which Polyev's team is quite... They're both critical of each other, because once you do that math, that's 450, 460,000, and then the party reports there were about 140,000 members when the race started. So, that's all 600,000 of them, which means Sheree, Roman Barber... Leslin Lewis, Scott Aitchison signed up no one, which seems unlikely. I think that's unlikely. I don't think there are any of those camps are going to be signing up huge numbers or will have signed up huge numbers. Between them, it wouldn't surprise me if you could, if there was, I don't know, 20, 30,000 in there, just between all those various camps and the kind of the people who just didn't sign up through a particular candidate but just decided oh i guess my membership's lapsed we have another one of these coming up i should probably join back up again there will be people who fall into that category too so you'll have the non-affiliated signups and just between all of that yeah there's something of a disconnect here and i'm not sure where that is but yeah something doesn't quite add up like I could see Leslin Lewis's team having actually signed up quite a few members based on the networks they had in her last leadership campaign. And there are those kind of church networks where she is quite strong within. And maybe that's not 300,000 strong. Maybe it's 50,000, but even you know, 50, it's, that it could be significant. Even 50,000 was more than Andrew Shear signed up when he won his. Now, he did pretty well with the existing membership base, but I did give you a rough idea of if Sheree signed up 10,000, Lewis signed up 15,000. Like th- Those are numbers I could see being roughly where the ballpark is, but then thrown five for the other 
candidates. And yeah, then you're starting to to get into a spot where the numbers aren't really adding up to 600,000. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll have to shake it out on the election night, I think. They can argue over these numbers because we don't really have anything else to go off of. So they'll still be processing a lot of these. And there'll be some memberships that came in that probably, for whatever reason, don't meet the right criteria. So there'll, there'll be a little bit of attrition on this. And at some point before the ballots go out, there will be an official number released. So we won't be finding out on September 10th that that's the, what the turnout will be that will that will be known then. Let's talk about the one issue that I think any of the candidates really brought up in the past week. Pierre Polyev had the chance to introduce a private member's bill in the House of Commons, and he decided to introduce the vaccine freedom and the mandates bill, Bill C-278, which would... He said it would end all current and future vaccine mandates. The bill Which, ex- like, explicitly only applies to COVID-19 vaccines. Also, you can't permanently do anything in our system because a future parliament can always just pass a different bill. He's, it's not going to pass anyway, but as most private members' bills won't, especially those that like aggressively target main government policies it's it's a virtue signaling exercise to try to show that he is against vaccine mandates which is a lane <laughs> to take one I you wouldn't necessarily think he would need cuz he already has he's already the, the biggest name in that kind of lane of the race so to speak like yeah roman babber is more extreme on that you have to have there has to be something else going on for someone to decide that you know, pierre polyev is not stringent enough on his anti anti vaccine mandate message and that's there's just not that many people in there so it makes you wonder why he felt the need to go this way and i i doubt this is the thing that's going to win him the leadership but it is the sort of thing that potentially makes him quite vulnerable in a general which is an odd choice for him to then lean into but Part of this might be that you know, Pierre Polyev is very much one of these what is what you get politicians. There really isn't uh he's not a man of subtext. He does loud, bold text and not really much in the way of uh subtlety on these. And I almost wonder if this is a lack of discipline moment on his part here and where he just can't help himself but keep hammering the points even when it's not strategically advantageous to do because you know if i was the liberals i would be pointed to this bill every moment i could particularly because he framed it in a way with the permanent end to all current vaccine mandates uh that current vaccine mandates cover a lot more than just covid and i don't know about you but i'm not super keen on a potential prime minister being on the pro measles or pro polio side of things we're literally seeing we're, I think we're at 150 monkeypox cases in Canada, and we're starting to see talk and efforts to roll out the smallpox vaccines to vulnerable co- populations to try to stem that tide of the next plague that's going out. And maybe that won't be mandated in the short term. But like you say, there are a lot of communicable diseases. Vaccines are good. I just want I just want candidates that run on vaccines are good. Uh, but like you said. Polyev is a what is what you get kind of candidate and 
We did just see Doug Ford do very well with that kind of approach to politics across Ontario. But then again, it's a different kind of what Doug Ford. Yeah. And Doug Ford was also, I think, in a way, a bit smarter about COVID in that he eventually realized he should listen to some of the experts. And Doug Ford's not a person that comes in with a lot of ideological preconceptions. He's a, you know, small tats, keep the government out of my business type thing very much in the eh, guy you know what a guy at a barbecue would be uh bending your ear on rather than a person who has read everything the fraser institute has ever put out like uh pierre polio different kind of what is what you get where yeah doug ford is very much the just one over lats and grill type of what is what you get where polyev's the ideologue where Doug Ford did very well in Ontario, especially in the GTA. Patrick Brown is now quite convinced that Polyev would be quite the liability for the party, so much so that he says uh, that he, if Polyev wins the leadership, he will not uh, run as a Conservative Party of Canada candidate. Now, what makes this quote even richer is he says he would run if Jean Charest wins, and he'd run if Leslin Lewis wins. <laughs> and he says, I could run under them. Absolutely. They have the capacity to win the next general election. Now, if you go through Leslie Lewis's policies on vaccines and on many of these issues, she's more extreme than Polyev. So I don't follow his logic other than he just doesn't pair Polyev. And he also knows Leslie Lewis probably won't win. So there's no reason to piss her off or her supporters. Yeah. If he is going to win, he will have to bring in a bunch of the... Leslie Lewis supporter, so there's no reason to pick a fight on that one. But, but the, the other best part of this is that if he doesn't become leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, he's thinking he'll stay on as mayor of Brampton. But CBC points out that there's an election, a local election coming up in Ontario this fall, just like there is here in BC. And the paperwork to run for mayor of Brampton is due August 19th, which is before the Conservative leadership deadline so, and announcements. So, Patrick Brown will be deciding whether he's running for mayor again before he has won or lost the conservative leadership race. It's an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, so I'm looking up. With if I were Brown, I'd be filing my paperwork. Yeah, he's probably better off filing the paperwork. I'm just checking where the Brampton ridings have gone. They're liberal seats right now, so yeah, I've gone through all of them. But, you know, that kind of tells me that he doesn't think a Pierre Paul message is necessarily be able to flip those and I, he's not wrong on that i i think it's going to be pretty difficult for um him to break through in a lot of the gta areas well and maybe they'll get to hash it out at one more debate the party is interested in hearing from members and the candidates themselves are starting to talk about whether there should be a third and final official debate so far, Jean Charest, Patrick Brown, Leslie Lewis, Roman Baber, and Scott Aitchison have all been publicly stating on Twitter that they're down for another debate, sometimes with caveats that, you know, that shitty moderator from the first English one shouldn't be back, well, or it should be a substantive, back? yeah, the, uh... it should be a substantive, friendly debate, in Aitchison's words, whatever, they all, they're all open for another debate. But one campaign, the Pierre Polyev campaign, has been silent on whether there should be another debate. That's pretty. I'm sure if the party forces it, he'll show up, but... That's pretty typical front-runner position. Like when you're in front, debates don't really serve your interests. They they only really have a chance to hurt you rather than help you. 
for the most part. It made sense strategically why he's not uh, champion at the pit to get out into another debate. Yeah, so that's the state of the Conservative Party of Leadership campaign at the start of June. It, if the numbers are true, Pierre Polyev can potentially win this on the first ballot, which would be quite decisive. It would be a Jugmeet Singh style win. I can't think of two. I think did Trudeau win on the first ballot in his race too? I can't probably. Remember. But other than that, we've seen a lot of down ballot wins. Even Kevin Falcon's relatively decisive win still took four or five ballots to finally creep from 40, whatever it was, 45% to 51. If he claims a clean victory, it's probably the best for party unity, even if they lose Patrick Brown, who I'm sure Pierre Polyev will not be batting a tear over. Yeah, Brown and Charest probably won't be sticking around on that one for sure. But yeah, the, the degree of kind of scorched earth tactics between Brown, Charest, and Polyev, just no matter how this shakes out, like there's going to be some wounds that'll need to be patched up. And I'm not sure that Pierre is necessarily going to be the person to do that effectively. So we could see the, there's obviously a lot of interest in the conservative party at the moment, but if it continues to stay at the same intensity it's been so far, particularly as the campaign shift from membership sales into persuasion for the members it's potentially could get nastier in a way that i don't think the conservative party is going to be particularly well served by well and one final comment before we move on from this topic i think because we've beaten it to death is we don't know where those members are like it could be that a lot of the signups are especially pierre polyev's are just in alberta saskatchewan in those heartland ridings for the conservatives that they are racking up votes in and if that's the case it doesn't do a damn thing for their electability in a general election like maybe patrick browns are all in the gta and a bit of bc and a few other parts of the country that spread it out a bit more to where they need to yeah, win brown's been and that makes a difference yeah brown's been going outside of the major areas and doing uh, campaign trips through there. So he, he could potentially have a wider net than one would necessarily assume just from the what we've seen of his public strategy so far on the point system anyway. So we'll keep our eye for the possible next debate. Otherwise, it might be a quiet few months for the conservative leadership race as they well, just, I mean, just try to convince everyone who signed up. There's nothing quiet about Pierre Polyev, so That's I don't think we'll, we're going to be in for that. Let's pivot from the horse race jockeying of leadership races to just the nerdy wonkiness of parliamentary and special reports from various officers. Let's... That, but the, I think they're still interesting, so stick with us, listeners. The first, let's start here in BC. We have death panels. The Americans fear them. We love them in BC. This is, I think, the third death panel report in a couple years that has come out of the chief coroner's office. This one is on extreme heat and human mortality, a review of heat-related deaths in BC in summer 2021. You'll undoubtedly recall that just about a year ago, the heat domes set in and it got miserably hot i think it hit 42 here in coquitlam about, for a couple of days in a row about that in burnaby and vancouver as well it got so hot 
my Wurtz air conditioner couldn't keep up with the the heat. It got to be like 30 degrees in the air-conditioned building. Yeah, I was pretty lucky to have gotten our heat pump installed a few weeks before that, and so we were enjoying the cool AC of a fresh, brand-new system blowing on us. But not as many people were as privileged as me or even as lucky as you to be in an uncomfortable office. 30 is not great. You probably weren't working that efficiently, but it's not fatal. It was fatal for 619 people, according to the panel. They reviewed all of the suspected deaths in that period and ruled that 619 were heat-related over a one-week period at the end of June. They looked at all of those deaths. They found two-thirds were among those over 70, 80% were among those with three or more chronic diseases on a certain list. Just over half were people who were living alone, 98% occurred indoors. And so it really just paints the picture that the people who died were largely older with severe health conditions, often living alone, which isn't that surprising, but does flag the kind of uh, actions we need to be doing to look out for people with disabilities and seniors, especially those in low-income situations or places where there aren't necessarily air conditioners, frankly. Yeah, a lot of buildings here, even fairly newer ones, don't necessarily have air conditioners built in. And the report recommends some steps to address this. It flags the importance of a public alert system, and there's been some back-and-forth debate over that. There was a lot of criticism at the time and throughout the last year. And then BC has finally started expanding its alert ready, that annoying cell phone thing you get to include more disasters than tsunamis, which we've thankfully not had recently. I'm sure we will. We're due at this rate. There have been a couple tsunami warnings in the last year or two, but not for the fault line off the coast here, but uh, elsewhere in the Pacific Rim. And... So now we have the alert ready and they finally agreed that yes, they'll include heat-related emergencies in future alerts for that. The report also recommends making sure there are checks on vulnerable people and it's a little unclear who those checks might be by. It might be just by friends or community members or it could be by police in some situations and there's some questions around that in community because wellness checks are a controversial situation. It also The report also sets out the need for ensuring future building code updates include air conditioning as an option or as a standard, but there's criticism because it doesn't include like a broad right to be cool and well, those sorts maybe of- it's just too expensive, <laughs> but it's like, what do you do with all the people right now who don't have cool spaces? Yeah, I, I can see why they didn't do that because a lot of these kind of positive rights frameworks are one of those things that sound good on paper, but are practically speaking a complex set of policy trade-offs regarding resource allocation and everything and logistical challenges. Because uh, it is not particularly easy to retrofit every building in BC or even a sizable chunk of them with new AC or HVAC systems. Yeah, like it's... It's easy to declare something right. It's a lot harder to actually translate that into something practicable. And to that extent, it's actually not that useful a framework for a lot of this stuff. 
report also came under some significant criticism from Gabriel Peters, disability activist who's pretty prominent in the Vancouver political scene on Twitter. She was initially involved in the discussions around this. She, her name didn't end up on the final report. And she argues that many of the criti- many of the recommendations she put forward didn't make it in. She specifically criticized the panel and the way it worked because it lacked COVID protocols that meant she felt she could participate meaningfully in it. For example, people weren't guaranteed to be wearing masks at in-person events. So she asked to be accommodated through virtual sittings and virtual attendance. But I guess they just put the laptop in the corner and she couldn't quite hear everyone who was in the in-person meeting. Like that kind of worst case. Like we've had a freaking two years of doing online hybrid meetings and and virtual meetings. And they were just like, oh, this is the best we can do for you. And it, from her framing of it, it sounds super patronizing and bad. And so, there's some criticisms there. And from 619 people died and needs to be taken seriously. Thankfully, this year has been drizzly and cold as I look out the window and it's raining yet again. We had an atmospheric river yesterday. Yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> They're just nonstop. On. Yeah, it's a La Nina so, year, so it's uh, shaping up to be a colder wetter summer did you learn that fact from professor andrew weaver no i picked it up elsewhere okay but i I got the reference there um on there so that's the heat death panel report you have any other takeaways from uh, i believe they did also flayed ambulance response times as one of uh, the contributing factors on this but that's been a long-standing issue that kind of came to the forefront when there were a lot of heat-related calls that didn't uh, end up getting answered during this. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think any surprises came out of this, but still a good reminder of the work that needs to be done to make sure we can survive the yeah, so continuing climate apocalypse. Yeah, they identified 50 instances of paramedics took 30 minutes or longer, and six of them where they were told no ambulance was available at all. Not great. And the yeah of the paramedics attended 54% of the deaths, the, the median response time was 10 minutes and 25 seconds, which can be a pretty long time when someone's in medical distress. Yep. Yeah. That's, uh, Having had to wait for ambulances and at one point calling one off in the last couple of years. Yeah, Bronx has a lot of work to do to fix that, and they're not uh, moving out that quickly on it. Well, let's talk about what else they're not moving on, or maybe they will. Well, they moved on this one. Uh, They're just maybe not going to move on the uh, follow-up to it when they're going to change it. It's unclear. So, the all-party special committee to review the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act has finally submitted its report, which followed, as you noted, amendments to the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act. Protection of Privacy Act last year, I believe it was. Because the best. This is a committee that started meeting, I think it's been meeting for quite a while and doing a pretty comprehensive review, which, yeah, got slightly preempted. Yeah, because, you know, the the best way to do legislation is to do it before the committee report on it. Nevertheless, this is a pretty substantive report. It does a very thorough look and. I think the government's argument can be they they had certain things like the fee that needed to come in so urgently. Did it though? No, but there's still good stuff in this report, right? So it had to get 
the Liberals, the NDP, and the Greens to get a consensus to write one unified report because they didn't want to write supplementals or concurring or dissenting reports. Uh, and they heard a lot of evidence on the fee to which they conclude the special committee was unable to reach consensus on a recommendation related to the application fee, which is one of those sentences that tells you a bunch of the MP or a bunch of the MLAs on the committee said, let's get rid of the fee because people are mad. And at least one, probably just one party though, said, nah, let's keep it. Yeah, I'm guessing they, they all happen to be wearing orange when they said this. Yeah. I will give this committee credit because what they do find consensus on are a lot of good things. So they really want to expand the transparency regime of government and better protections for people. It's the two fundamental elements of the act. So there are things in here like the duty to document would be applied to much of government. Things actually have paper records that can be FOI. So they have just deciding this over a phone call to avoid documenting the stuff. That's still going to happen, but at least with this and with slowly undoing all of the triple delete kind of stuff, it'll be a little bit safer to find decision making. They uh, recommend extending the act to the Legislative Assembly. This is something Daryl Plekis was really big on and recommended strongly and was talked about a lot during the Legislative Assembly spending scandals because the public just doesn't really have a good way to know what's happening in the Legislative Assembly itself or within you know the clerk's office and all of that. Besides, what they have is now some like small proactive disclosure. That's a step in the right direction, but it could just be brought under the FOI Act. There's also calls to clarify information on there's also calls to clarify what materials should be released and kept, including background materials, uh, facts that feed into advice. And especially, they note that not every time a lawyer is involved, is it necessarily privileged legal information that you can't give out. Like legal information, legal advice that is provided in confidence, they don't have to disclose. But lawyers are involved in a lot of discussions that aren't yeah, it, privileged. And having a lawyer in a room does not automatically make something privileged. So really clarifying a lot of that stuff would help. They also flagged the idea of a duty to assist applicants. So this would require the people working the FOI office to actually support people in trying to get the records they need, maybe help them shrink record requests down if they seem too broad, help them direct them in the right way, all of this kind of stuff. The record system is quite weird right now. I know someone who has an FOI filed and the government asked for a 30-day extension, and that's initially granted. And then if you want an additional extension, the government comes or the office comes back to you and says, Scott, do you, we need your, I need you to, I need you to consent to an, another extension so we can finish doing this FOI. And it's framed in a way that you have to consent. What happens if you don't? So my friend who just replied said, I'm actually heading out of town soon. I'll give you a one more day. So instead of the 15th, you can return it to me on the 16th before I leave. And they clarified, wait, you're consenting to a one day extension? And he's like, yep. And that's all they got. They only get one more day. And I think I did something similar where 
I asked the office when they asked for a consent to extend, what happens if I don't consent? And then the documents were in my desk the next day. Yeah, like there's, there seems to be so, no incentive to actually agree to it. Yeah, so this would actually change that if all of these were applied properly. The act would ideally be changed so there would be a waiver of fees if the body you're asking for an FOI from fails to meet its statutory timeline. They would also change the statutory timeline because right now it's 30 business days rather than 30 calendar days. And that makes a pretty big difference. So this would all be helpful. There would also be a publication of the timeliness of responses. So we know which departments were better at uh, responding to FOIs. So I like all of that is good stuff that I think would make our system better. Like it wouldn't be perfect. The fee is still annoying. In the end, I could live with a modest fee. Maybe five is better than 10, but whatever. If all of these other elements work. Yeah, there's no red flags are obviously bad ideas in this. I'm not sure the NDP are going to take them up on it, considering how um, they approached the last amendments to the law. But yeah, mostly good stuff. On the privacy side, there was a number of different amendments proposed. I didn't go into all of them. There was a lot of looking at the effects of new technology and the linkages of data in there. There was a focus on if automated decision making is being used, that you should have to be notified of that if it's applying to your data. There should be comprehensive health privacy. There should be a new comprehensive health information privacy legislation. So lots of stuff in there that seems very positive. Oh, also on the FOI side, they noted that they should broaden the definition of what a public body is to actually capture all of the agencies of government because right now they just have a fixed list. But maybe there's a new crown corporation or something they forgot on there that wouldn't be applied. And so they should just have a more universal list. So it's pretty clear that you can just ask anyone for the information and a lot of focus on proactive publication and proactive disclosure including on procurement documents. So it would be a good system. The NDP who MLAs who were on it did consent to all of these recommendations. So that's a positive sign at least. But Scott, there's also recommendations coming from the Chief Electoral Officer of Canada on how we should regulate our elections. Do you want to run through that? Yeah. So the Chief Electoral Officer after an election, we'll put together a report. In this case, it's for the 43rd and 44th Canadian general elections, which I believe are the last two uh, on that. Sounds right to me. Yeah, I admittedly are, don't have the the ordinal number of the election immediately in my mind as opposed to the year. But yeah, the 44th was the 2021 election. So that does. I remember it because the hashtag is ELXN44. Okay. That little bit of Twitter trivia did, did slip my mind, but yeah, now that you mention it. So it would, if these recommendations were adopted, would replace, would add rules around providing misleading election information, not the politicians say something untruthful, like uh, the liberals got in trouble for with that doctored video uh, Freeland tweeted out, but more the sending out wrong information about how the elections actually work. So, you know, if you were to, tell someone that, oh, this polling place is actually over there in, in the wrong spot. That would be prohibited under this. 
as well as it spanned a lot of the rules to cover more than just direct advertising into general communications, increased the spending cap below which or above which third parties would have to register, allowing the pre-registration of candidates, which actually makes a huge amount of sense because Right now, a lot of the rules are written around basically, okay, they're per candidate in the writ period, but it's gray what happens in the time that they're seeking a nomination or they have been nominated, but a writ hasn't been issued yet. So this would basically create a category of prospective candidates and parties could disassociate or associate with them up to the point at which the nominations happen. Like the formal filing the paperwork with Elections Canada for appearing on the ballot nomination. Yeah, the controls on third-party groups are always interesting to me, and I always pay attention to those because they can sometimes affect me professionally in my work. This one does go beyond advertising to issue-based electoral communications, and those are ones that would be seen as having, quote, the purpose of promoting or opposing a party or candidate during the election or pre-election period. So it's still partisan. So my general, my charity work is nonpartisan. So it doesn't get captured necessarily. But I have seen some cases, I think the BC election laws do actually cover nonpartisan issue campaigns. And that just creates like paperwork nightmares that like, this says if you're spending a lot, you need to set up a separate campaign fund to only include funds from Canadian citizens and permanent residents. That's why the threshold of $1,000 is so important that I can be pretty confident that a campaign I run for a couple months around an election won't cost the organization $1,000. But if we got bigger, then it creates a headache of having to do all this paperwork. And that creates disincentives for small mid-sized organizations to get involved in the public debate. Large organizations can probably manage it, large companies, large unions, etc. Small organizations thankfully are under the threshold, but there is a chilling effect of some of these regulations even when I can see the value of them at times too. They would also allow bitcoins to be and other crypto to be accepted, but it they have to be traceable rather than accepted without the proper documentation and everything they would prohibit prepaid credit cards but would continue to allow small cash donations i.e under twenty dollars yeah so the electoral officer recommends that the name home address and occupation of returning officers be removed from being published in the canadian gazette which i mean okay name and occupation seem fine but it's weird to publish someone's home address there or like the yeah. Vancouver East returning officer that you can just look up where they live. Yeah. I'm shocked that was in there. And I think it's one of those things that doesn't get reported because everyone who realizes that, or most people who realize that are good people and go, that shouldn't be public. It's like directors of societies. You can look up their home address often, or at least an address they can be serviced like, at. It's not all that hard to, you know, if you, you find out every writing's return officer, and I'm sure if someone was dedicated to it, they could peruse the the phone book and actually find out where they live. But like, just putting it all in one place seems weird. Particularly in the- and a public place. Yeah. 
So yeah, that would be something to stop doing. And yeah, they would also allow Elections Canada to collect anonymized demographic data to hopefully help improve voter turnout and just engagement and representation of different demographics and marginalized groups and so on and so forth. So lots of stuff in there. Um, but yeah, let's talk about deregistering political parties. Yeah. So this was the thing that I saw get the most traction kind of among my feet and whatnot was recommendation 4.3.1 around a recommendation to basically allow a elector or a group of electors to go to court to get a party deregistered if its primary purpose is the promotion of hatred against an identifiable group. Which So the Nazi party would be banned. Yeah. And like th- this is the sort of thing that seems at first glance like a good idea, but it also seems like the sort of thing that is open for abuse. It would be easy to waste a party's resources by filing uh, complaints against them or trying to get them deregistered. And yeah, the Nazis can go screw off. You could, to take a BC example, think back to the 2020 election and you have Laurie Thronis running. Like someone could make a case against that. Like, is it really in the public interest to try and deregister the Liberal Party because... Laurie Thronis appeared on a ballot. I don't like the guy. I wouldn't vote for him, but it seems it would be very democratically dubious to end up in that situation, though. Yeah, I would definitely see it. It's prone for abuse. being thrown against. Yeah, like the Christian Heritage Party would probably get challenged under this, and maybe you could make a case. And like you say, there are times it could be brought against more mainstream parties i'd be really curious to see how a court treated this the lower courts would be the big risk because they're scattershot and what kind of judge you get and courts of appeal tend to be a bit better and the supreme court of canada is obviously the preeminent but when you look at how especially the supreme court is treated charter jurisprudence around democratic rights those like section three right to vote right to run they are very expansive this is why they're like you know what person who's never been in canada for a decade they still get to vote because it says they get to vote in the charter and people are like do they and it's like the court said in frank v canada frank gets to vote and they applied the same to uh people and who are incarcerated and a number of other situations that I think they've gone farther, and I'm very supportive of this personally, but I think they've gone farther with democratic rights than with any other rights in the charter, just because it's such a core part of, if you're going to call yourself a democracy, you better do it. And political parties are part of our democracy. And so, I could see that having to be very carefully tailored to be a justifiable restriction. I'm just saying I'd be interested in the case law around it, even if I don't have a strong opinion on passing it in the election. Yeah, I'm Act. sure it would make for interesting case law. But it also is the sort of thing where either a party is so irrelevant that deregistering them wouldn't really matter, or there's a broader issue where they have significant share of public support, at which case, A, that points to something more fundamental than just party registration issues. 
and B would then be probably, you know, would raise questions of democratic legitimacy at that point if they are large enough to have a effect on election outcomes. Like, no matter what, like, you're not in a great position here. It doesn't really seem to do much in terms of, or it doesn't really seem to hit a, a good public policy goal on that front in practice. So to defend the election officer's move in recommending this, he focuses on the risks, not that they win and form government. That's not his role to decide who should and shouldn't win, obviously, but that there are advantages and privileges to having a registered political party. Tax uh, receipts is the most obvious one, but they get access to the voter list. And that is a lot of people's information that if you are an overt hate group could be used for ill. So maybe that's part of the argument. Now, you'd still need to ban can then you'd also need to ban candidates from running who are like hate group or involved in hate groups because otherwise they could get but they'd only get it for one constituency versus the party might get the entire country's information. So what, that's the, some of where it's coming what, what's from. What's the requirement? It's what, fifty, hundred signatures or something and a small deposit? Like it's all in all, like if a group is dedicated to that, they could get the get a bunch of independents running. It's a challenge they've raised, and so I think there are different levels of merit to the idea here. I'm not necessarily endorsing it or supporting it, but yeah, it's one that's interesting to see come in here. There's also a lot of criticism of social media in here. Like you mentioned, the focus on ads or anyone who knowingly provides false information about the voting process. The example I think I saw in CBC and elsewhere was discussing groups that said, you must be vaccinated to vote and they'll turn you away if you're not vaccinated or misinformation around that that seemed more deliberate to try to divide around vaccine status when that was never going to be the case. Or in the past, we've had the Pierre Poutine robocalls that told people to go to the wrong polling address. Although I think that is already a crime because that's fraud. Yeah, there was a, yes, someone got charged for that and I believe convicted. But they would have clarified those for sure. And broadened it. So we'll be very curious to see what among this the government takes up. Let's jump into quick takes. The BC Liberal Party is holding its convention as we speak. And as you're listening to this, assuming you're listening to this on the weekend of June 10th to 12th, they're in Penticton. And coming out of this, they may not be the BC Liberal Party for much longer. Yeah, so one of the things Kevin Falcon ran on was renaming the party. What that is still TBD. But on the agenda is a name change plenary where they're going to investigate and potentially decide to opt for a new name for the BC Liberal Party. I uh, so my person I can't get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my view on this is that yeah, the BC Liberal Party brand wasn't super great the last uh, two elections, but there's nothing in there that is inherently problematic or damaging. That a just a general you know revitalization, refresh of the party, new leadership, which you know we have now, and like 
nothing that couldn't be done through the normal process by which parties rebuild themselves after a couple of election losses and the exhaustion of being in government for a decade plus. Like those normal processes take care of it on their own. The BC NDP was in a pretty rough spot. Would it be 20 years ago now, roughly? And they did the work. They eventually recovered. They didn't need to change their name. Same thing with the federal liberals. There's nothing on there that really needs the name change. And they got some... One of the things that's apparently uh, precipitating this is that a lot of the candidates in the more rural parts of the province got you know some flack from the people who aren't uh huge justin trudeau fans at the same time those are not the voters that are the people that they need to win back really the the bc liberals biggest problem is they're not connecting with metro vancouver and, and other urbanized parts of the the province and dropping the liberal branding for something more conservative isn't necessarily going to help on that front. The confusion with the federal liberals is probably the strongest argument for changing a name just because it comes up so frequently, but it's also dispelled pretty quickly, especially when you can point like in Europe and Australia, the liberals are the center parties usually. But maybe there's something I think if they change it, they might go for some kind of generic like British Columbia party like they've done in Saskatchewan and Yukon. Cascadia Party is taken. Uh, I did look up the list of registered political oh, parties. Like, I think uh, Social Credit is still registered. Is the Cascadia Party some like fringe separatist thing? I think so. The Excalibur Party, I think, is available oh, now. Oh, okay. What was it like the Excalibur Party for? Oh, I can't recall that. So we'll see how the debate goes. Falcon has said if there is support for changing a name, he'll launch a consultation process with the whole party. And if there isn't, this will be the end of it. And then they'll move on in theory. Moving on to our next quick take. The PC government is going to be delaying upgrades to at least seven schools, uh, citing a shortage of capital cash. So the report from Global News doesn't have a total here, but they've identified at least seven different ones and included in that is the Vancouver... False Creek Elementary, Kilkarney, David Thompson Secondary, as well as upgrades at Pitt Meadows Secondary School and the construction of a new secondary school in Mission are all on hold for a period, something in the order of one to ten years, but that has not been announced at all. Uh, so the rationale for this is due to the pandemic and last year's floods. The province has fewer capital funds than originally expected. They are spending about 3.1 on upgrades over the next three years and nearly 1 billion on fast tracking schools. But nevertheless, there's definitely a, a tension with the insistence from a lot of new Democrats a few weeks back that there weren't really any constraints on capital budgets back when they were defending the decision on rebuilding the museum. And it suggests that they weren't entirely honest about that or necessarily addressed in a, a forthright manner, that there are real trade-offs here when it comes to capital spending. And we're seeing that now with these uh, schools getting delayed. There's lots of technocratic arguments to be made defending like these can't 
be done right now for the reasons they've said and the money to be spent on the museum is money that's not being spent this year. It's money that's projected to be spent over the course of the next eight years. And there's all of that kind of like technocratic stuff that's right. And it's the same like the debate we had over the different kinds of budgets and they're all like right on paper. But the moral argument of the schools are being delayed, but we're also wanting to spend that it's just bad look and it undermines the comms they've done on all of this. And it seems like the minister who has brought out, I believe, Whiteside, the education minister, was not able to really defend this very well. And it's, yeah, get your shit together. Like, I'm not saying they necessarily have to fast track all of these and find the extra money, although that would be ideal. And they're trying to justify like, we're spending more than the BC Liberals were spending and they left an infrastructure deficit. And it's, that's true, but you're still not spending enough. It's also been five years and you're in your second term. Like the last government excuse doesn't really fly at this point anymore. We're doing better, but not well yeah, enough. And it's also not great on the comm side because we don't know what these deferments are. They could be up to the end of the 10-year capital plan and that could mean there's an overlap with the museum expenditures and we don't have a yearly breakdown on what the, the cash flows on the museum project are going to be. So like between all of this, we're left on the how does it actually all mesh together and people can take what they want from it or, or try and interpret it. But like really without clarity on this, it's a bit of a black box and it's yeah, it doesn't leave the government looking all that great on it. And when we first talked about the museum, like the week it was announced, and there started to be a backlash to it. There was some disagreement, I think, between us on how much this would have staying power. And it's the things like this that I think are going to be contributing to its staying power. Because every time there's a project gets delayed, or even someone is irritated at something that could be being worked on, but isn't even if there hasn't been a formal project announced on it. Like, those frustrations will compound if they see a big, expensive other project that they don't really feel is a, a priority on that. And that is, I think, where the danger is, and particularly on something like this. And yeah, interest rates are rising, but maybe it was, uh, maybe it would have been worth a hit to, to borrow a little more for some to not uh, delay these capital expenditures. I'm just surprised they didn't take the easy obvious out and blame the school districts and another level of government for getting in the way. I think probably because these are already on the capital plan and it's the school districts. Yeah, they they told us that are wanting more things but haven't sorted their shit out like notably Vancouver and it's not doing good projections on where it will need future schools. But that's a subject for the Cambria report to eventually get around to one day. <laughs> yeah. And like in this case, it, it looks like the, the government told the school boards that they weren't getting the cash when they, they thought they were going to be getting them because of this. Speaking of debates, one longstanding territorial dispute that Canada has been engaged in has finally been settled. We are no longer in a war of words with Denmark over a tiny rock in the, you know, middle of the channel between Greenland and almost Elsewhere Atlantic Island. Sea, a 1.3 kilometer, a 1.3 square kilometer island known as Hans Island or Tartupalik in Greenlandic is being cut in half. So we Bring now have, sauce. what is that, like 650 square meters yeah. of island? 
presumably. They haven't released the details. The formal agreement is supposedly going to be unveiled on June 14th, and the Globe and Mail is reporting this based on what they're hearing from their sources. I would presume when they say they're drawing a border across the island, that's more or less going to go down the middle, and one uh, country isn't going to get a little more than another. But yeah, this puts an end to a long-standing dispute. The original maritime boundary was negotiated in the 70s, and they just left the island unresolved at the time. And since then, both part both countries have claimed it, and it's kind of a ongoing thing where one country's military would fly out and raise a flag, and then the other country would send out a helicopter and lower that flag and replace it with their own. And my favorite part of the story is whenever they would go there, the Danes would leave a bottle of schnapps and the Canadians would leave a bottle of Canadian Club whiskey and for their counterparts when they came to forcefully change the flags on that. But I think most interesting here is that now this technically means that Canada has land borders with two countries. And it's, it's not every day your the number of borders your country has doubles. I'd need to look at a map, but there was almost a bad joke about the Ukraine-Russian war in there. Both of them I don't border, think they've expanded. Both of them border a lot more countries. It's anything. not going to do a Dublin. No, but they haven't increased the number of borders in yeah. there. Uh, interestingly- Anyway, Canada and Denmark tried to argue this is, this is the peaceful... It's like, this isn't anything about the Ukraine war. Yeah. It is okay. You can settle territorial disputes in, in other ways, but yeah, it's when it's over a nothing rock. Yeah, it, it, it's more symbolic than anything else. Although, interestingly, this also means that Canada now has a land border with the EU. Not that you're going to be going through passport control on Hans Island anytime soon, but I believe that technically makes it easier for Canada to gain entry into the EU, which is an interesting hypothetical, but one that does not seem to be in the offing anytime soon. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.